0: This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome.
1: These are important actions to take right now, um, but they're also they're they're also somewhat they're band-aids. It's like you know we're taking a, a bag of band-aids to a car wreck right now, and so that's why it's like we have to we have to act with urgency to to invest in watershed health, our infrastructure our rivers and the communities that depend on them going forward we have to we have to give ourselves the tools to live with the river that we have
0: today's episode is a tour of 10 rivers across the united states a countdown of sorts two weeks ago american rivers published their annual report titled america's most endangered rivers of 2022 to learn more i had a detailed conversation with two members of american rivers What is great about the report and this interview is that we also talked about the success from past reports and how the attention focused on struggling rivers in years past has also brought strong supportive attention to some rivers and helped them to become relieved of their pressure. So here in this episode, we give deep attention to the 10 rivers of this year's report, learning where the river is and the challenges it faces, and we also look at past successes. In the episode notes for today, you can find links directly to the report from American Rivers and to the video that gives strong visuals of each river. In this interview, I talk with Amy Sowers-Kober and Matt Rice, both members of the American Rivers staff. We start off with each guest introducing themselves and American Rivers as an organization.
2: My name is Amy sowers Cober. I'm the VP for communications at American Rivers. I'm based in Oregon. American Rivers is a national River Conservation Organization, and we are working toward a future of clean water and healthy rivers everywhere for everyone. And gosh, my river story, I have many. I honestly think um, it just was like a lot of people. Um, I grew up with a creek behind my house and my memories are just that my brother and me and my friends playing down there and like there was never an adult around and it was just our time to be little wild kids. Um, and I think that that's so important for every kid to be able to have.
0: I love that because I grew up next to a creek and I'm thinking of it the way you talk. I'm like, yeah, nobody was there. Just me. Uh, Matt, would you please take a turn and tell us about yourself?
1: Sure, Sam. So yeah, my name is Matt Rice, and I'm the Southwest Regional Director with American Rivers, um, and I'm based in Denver. Yeah, my my river story is not too dissimilar. I also obsessed and wanted to spend all my time around creeks and rivers and streams for as long as I can remember, because all the coolest stuff was there, all the amphibians and reptiles and insects. And then I, uh, then I learned to fish, and um, that was it. I knew that I I needed to work around four rivers at some point. And that's taken various forms over the years. I was a fly fishing guide for years and um, served in the Peace Corps, did a lot of work on water in the Peace Corps, and then um, came back and got a master's degree and got lucky enough to um, work for American Rivers about 15 years ago. So it's a it's a dream job.
0: Where did you serve in the Peace Corps?
1: I was in Southern Africa and
0: Zambia. And I did an I did an
1: aquaculture program, and, and actually I've uh, I've got the, uh, the the distinction. I'm probably the only person at American Rivers that um, so I worked with rural farmers to integrate aquaculture into their existing farming systems. These were subsistence farmers, and um, I have the distinction of being probably one of the only American Rivers staff that has designed and helped construct a, a 110 meter long dam, so we could pull water to mm-hmm. fill fish ponds. Mm-hmm.
0: River Radius is pleased to welcome a new advertising sponsor to the podcast, Nissan Cars and Trucks and the local Denver area Nissan dealers. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck and in the middle of this episode we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out, it's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles, they have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed, or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull, and what I really mean is can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp, does it drive and feel safe, and can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes... Even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. So, this past week, April 19th, American Rivers published the Most Endangered Rivers Report. This is an annual project of American Rivers. Um, A few questions about that. Can you all tell me how many years this has been published and the general, kind of the gist of it, the nature, the purpose of that report?
2: Yeah. Well, we have been issuing this annual list for 37 years. And it it is the biggest alarm bell we sound every year on threats to rivers. We look at three key criteria when we're building this list every year. One is the significance of the river. Two is the magnitude of the threat. And three is a decision point. There has to be a a thing that the public can take action on in the coming year. So it, it highlights rivers at risk. It is this year's report really highlights how the climate crisis is a water crisis. But the important thing is that it's not just terrible news there really is a solution on each of the rivers and it's all about hope and action and rallying people who care about these places to do something and the solutions are all achievable they're doable and we shine a very bright spotlight on these rivers to make that happen
0: Tell me more about this This kind of, um, maybe even the, like the feeling of a juxtaposition between the doom and gloom. Because at some level, it feels like that. You know, I read the report. It's like, oh, geez, these you know these videos, these pictures. That, and I think in particular, so I'll say this. For, for those listening to this episode, with the rollout of this report, there's a great video. It's about an hour and a half. I think it's worth taking the time to watch because there's a lot of visual in that that provides the deeper information about these rivers. And the one that I thought was really interesting was the Mobile River. The, the The biodiversity there was fascinating. The videos were incredible. In that video is the place to see that juxtaposition of, wow, there's a huge power plant that's pushing all this coal ash towards the water and all these deregulated elements. And conversely, it's beautiful. What is it? Something like one-third of all fish species in the United States are in that one river? Amazing. Uh, the, the colors of the, the plants, the birds, the the insects. Can you go a little deeper on that, Amy, and tell me more about like, how does even, how does American rivers even have that conversation of, of balancing this delivery of, Hey, these rivers are really threatened and they're also really incredible. What, what happens for you all as you, as you produce this?
2: I mean, it's our job to look at what's at stake right as the nation's voice for rivers this is what's at stake and rivers are so important rivers are life rivers are you know essential to all of our lives so you've got to when you see something wrong you have to call it out and you have to um you have to spotlight it and at the same time like nobody has the appetite for more bad news without like some step you can take to make the world better right now right i mean so there's, there's a lot of really huge crises facing us and our rivers right now. There's the climate crisis. There's the crisis around ongoing racial injustice. There's the loss of biodiversity. All of these things are interconnected. So the stakes are incredibly high. And at the same time, rivers have always been a source of hope and possibility and forward motion, like literally and figuratively. So how can you not be hopeful when you're talking about rivers and working on rivers look at the local partners that american rivers gets to work with on all these rivers look at the amazing work they're doing and the leadership they're providing look at the leadership as matt was mentioning about tribal nations and the the leadership that they're providing so you can't help but be hopeful and it's such an honor and i know matt would agree like what an honor to wake up every day and we get to work on these issues. We get to work with these partners. It's, even though the, the, the issues are so high stakes and depressing sometimes, it's also incredibly fun and inspiring. And um, it's, an ama- it's just amazing work to be able to do.
0: Talk more, will you, about this, this idea of, I've heard you say it a few times, of, of tribes being involved either in the report or in the work to support rivers. Tell me more about what you're expressing in that, the relationship that AR American rivers is building with tribes to do this water work. What's going on in, in that part of the conversation?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, I mean, I, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't want to come off it in any way as speaking for our tribal partners in any way. That's a relationship that is growing. That's developing trust is kind of increasingly being built between conservation organizations and Southwestern tribal nations. We're certainly not there yet, but we are 100% committed to getting there and, and figuring out ways that we can work together, that we can support each other. And in this report, you know, one of the, the kind of grave injustices about management of the river going back more than 100 years is that while tribes are a are critically important player in, in the region, um, they have not had an equitable seat at the table when it comes to decision making and policy making. And we hope that we can, we can elevate that message and we can, through this report, demonstrate our support for kind of equitable engagement, equitable decision making in the basin. Is,
0: is that changing? Is that decision process opening itself up to engaging with tribes? Be, like beyond the work of AR, because I think of the, the, the federal and the state groups that manage these waters, is that, is that decision process opening up to engage the tribes beyond the, the, the interest of AR yeah, well
1: we 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 certainly we certainly hope so. This is the kind of thing that doesn't happen overnight unfortunately. I mean this is this is a, more than 100 years of status quo. Decision making and and um yeah you know, that change takes a little bit of time, but the tribes are are again so important. They have such an important role in the basin and their knowledge their experience, their their input, meaningful input into how we make decisions about how we manage water and move water, um, is going to be critically important for the sustainability of the river. Not only because it's it's the right thing, but because if we're going to have a sustainable system or a resilient system, the tribes need to be front and center.
0: So, tell me more about the report. There's, there's a list of ten rivers on your report this year. Who's who's making that decision? Is this a poll, like some sort of voting? Is this a scientific research-based uh, set of 10 rivers? How is that decision made? Uh, and who is, who is gathering the final set of 10 rivers and putting them out on this list?
2: So we put out a call for nominations uh, every, it's usually late summer. Um, so the report comes out every April. So the the big call for nominations goes out nationwide. Uh, We share it with a huge variety of partners, individuals, local groups, community groups, river groups, um, you name it. Anyone can nominate a river. And we encourage everyone to nominate rivers that that fit the criteria. Um, So big call for nominations. Uh, The nominations come in. And then we have a team of staff at American Rivers that evaluates them. Uh, Based on the three criteria of the significance of the river, the magnitude of the threat, especially in an era of climate change and with um, environmental injustices. And uh, there has to be a decision point in the coming year that the public can influence. So, It's a, it's a long, many, many meetings and long conversations. We usually finalize the list in January and then it's all of the prep with the local partners on each of those rivers to get to the launch date in April.
1: It's a, it's a lot more, um, Focused than it used to be when I first started with American Rivers almost 15 years ago. I remember being part of the first kind of MER decision making process, of which it was organization wide, and everybody in the organization. We had a whole giant long list of rivers that were nominated by local partners throughout the country, and um, it was like a war room where staff were advocating for rivers, and it was a it was kind of a really fun process. Now it's a little bit more streamlined and focused, but.
2: It's still intense. <laughs> it's still intense.
0: Yes. <laughs> so let's take a let's take a quick look back at uh, the previous five years. I'm curious, not the entire list, but I'd, I'd like to hear from you what was the number one uh, most endangered river in each of the previous five years.
2: Yeah, um, I can run through that, and then Matt can provide commentary because he's got he has a couple of those. Um, so last year, 2021, was the Snake River in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Four federal dams driving salmon to the brink of extinction. Um, No surprise that the snake is also on the list again this year. 2020 was the Mississippi River. We were highlighting the huge threat of climate change and increased flooding along the Mississippi. 2019 was the Gila in New Mexico. That was spotlighting a bad water diversion that would have really harmed the river and water in the river. 2018 was the Big Sunflower River in Mississippi, and that one um, was calling out this terrible boondoggle floodplain draining project called the Yazoo Pumps, which we actually finally ended up killing uh, together with our partners. And then 2017 was the Lower Colorado in Arizona, California, and Nevada, um, highlighting the problems of of water scarcity and um, similar issues as we're talking about this year. But, um, I mean, the good news is, and Matt can speak to this, like we've seen, um, some good progress, like this, this report does shine a a big spotlight and gets decision makers attention and really can help move some of these rivers, um, into a better place.
0: Yeah. Matt, you want to contribute to that? It's a fascinating set of rivers and I have some definitely, I have some questions about them, but what else would you like to add in, in there, Matt?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, I, I can I can speak to the, the Gila River. The Gila River, um, I think it was a really successful listing. I mean, we worked very, very, very closely with a number of local partners in New Mexico. And again, that was to highlight a, a project that had been on the books for a long time, a project to divert the Gila River, which is the Gila River is this really, really special place. It is it is kind of a, a keystone place for biodiversity in the Southwest. It's one of the Southwest's last free-flowing rivers, um, and we had great partners. the The Gila River Indian Indian community in Arizona supported the listing, and ultimately, that project was was shelved. And I wouldn't suggest that the listing was was the primary reason that it was, but I would suggest that it that it helped, and especially because again, you know, the the, the power of this list is is it's not american rivers it's it's the partners that are behind these these listings and it brings a lot of it brings a lot of juice for them and and ultimately that was a good outcome on the lower colorado river uh, the focus zambi said it was on water scarcity that we, it was specifically on on encouraging the lower basin states to uh, come together and, and agree and complete the lower basin drought contingency plan. Um, They have proven to be very, very effective. And if we didn't have the drought contingency plans in place right now, the basin would be
0: in an even worse position. I'm glad you brought up the Gila, the river radius. We did an episode about the Gila last fall and legislation was delivered to the U.S. Congress um, from New Mexican senators, uh, Martin Heinrich and Ben Ray Lujan to bring that into wild and scenic status. Do you have any update on that? Is that just kind of sitting there still, or is that is that moved at all?
1: Well, yeah, it was it was reintroduced a few months ago. We are waiting for the bill to get a hearing, and it's it's a remarkable effort that American Rivers has been very very proud to support over many many years. The bill would protect 450 miles of the Gila and San Francisco rivers. Again, this is this is one of the last amazing great places in the Southwest, and and we're we're hopeful that it it crosses the finish line sometime this year.
0: So let's look at the report for this year, and I'd like to run through the list. Um, we're going to go dramatic fashion to count down like Dave Letterman style, top 10, but probably different top 10, but top 10, and we'll go through uh, 10 through 2, and if you all can tell me the name of the river, the location, where this river is in the, in the country, because some of them are kind of obscure, maybe not on our bigger radar, also in that just a brief snapshot why it's at risk and what is next in, in the work for that river. So, if we can, number 10.
2: <laughs> number 10 uh, is Tar Creek, a uh, small creek in Oklahoma. While it may be a small creek, it is threatened by one of the country's biggest Superfund sites, um, which is poisoning Tar Creek with all kinds of bad uh, heavy metals, old mining waste creating major, not only clean water concerns, but health concerns for the local communities.
0: Okay. Next uh, on the list, Amy, what you got?
2: So number nine on the list is the Los Angeles River. And most people, when they picture the the LA River, they think of movies they've seen, right? Like Grease or Terminator, this concrete channel, um, which is the scene of all these car chases. Uh, But this is a living river and we're just focusing on the fact that that concrete um, combined with climate change is threatening the health of the river and also community access and enjoyment of the river.
0: You know, last year, last summer, I went out to Los Angeles to do interviews around how uh, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California is recycling water, you know, trying to change their, their consumption. And I spent a lot of time at the LA river It's fascinating. It's very concrete, but it's also got some cute little riparian spots. And there are so many birds trying to eke it out in these concrete places. And I was amazed at how, in a lot of places, the community really used the river for bike riding. I mean, in a place like L.A., where it's so much city, that little stream of water really provided a lot of kind of respite for the people. You could just kind of, and people would bike it, but they'd also just hang out and it was pretty neat. Yeah.
2: It's this ribbon of life. And if you think about with climate change, every, every city, especially LA is going to get hotter and drier. And so, you know, people need that, um, the shade and the coolness and the water. And, you know, you've got to be able to have those little refuges wherever you are.
0: Yeah. All right. What's the next one?
2: Number eight is the San Pedro River in Arizona, Um, this incredible hotspot for biodiversity and birds and fish and wildlife. Um, The problem on the San Pedro is groundwater pumping, um, which threatens the water flowing in the river and threatens the dry up stretches of the river.
0: So I think biodiversity, I feel like that's just kind of like this uh, kind of canned phrase that can be attached to any piece of land water that needs some love from the humans but can you can you really speak to that like what what that means because in a place like arizona where it's desert how does a ribbon of water create biodiversity that is so unique uh, adjacent to the other landscapes that, that it's running through
1: yeah so the the research that we've seen the data we've seen says that about 80 percent the word you like again sam of biodiversity so birds and bugs and Mammals and reptiles and amphibians spend 80 percent, spend at least part of their life cycle around a river in the southwest. Um, And that's one of the challenges in Arizona, because we're as we're facing water scarcity and a much hotter, drier climate with less water. And the fact that from a management perspective, some of Arizona's water supply has already been cut and will likely be cut more there is uh, an inclination by water users to go right back to already depleted aquifers. And I think the big story in Arizona is that their laws don't acknowledge the connection between groundwater and surface water, unlike other Western states. And so they, the very real risk in Arizona is because there's less surface water available from the Colorado River, that more and more communities are going to tap their groundwater that's already depleted. And if that groundwater goes away, that presents the risk of, of desiccating the state. There aren't very many perennial rivers and streams in Arizona. The San Pedro is one of them, um, but intermittent rivers are are really really important for the health of the environment. And those rivers become less intermittent if the groundwater is gone. And
0: and the other thing in that value of that biodiversity in a place like Arizona is that that is it, it's like a rest stop for all the critters, all the creatures that migrate north to south from the that Colorado Plateau region, that lower desert down into the country of Mexico, all kinds of winged and um and and I don't know what I, I'm gonna call them pod, but, but <laughs> creatures that walk. We've got the ones that fly and the ones that walk. They stop there yeah. at the at these rivers in, in Arizona and New Mexico, like the Gila also and and sure. uh, and yeah and revitalize their, their systems. Yeah. So if those rivers
1: go away, which that's the threat from excessive groundwater pumping that there's not going to be a place for those winged and pod
0: <laughs> critters to stop coming up with new scientific terms groundbreaking. <laughs> that's <it>. okay <laughs> so uh, i think that brings us to the seventh river amy what do you got for number seven
2: yeah number seven is the kern river in california and we're really talking about the river that flows through bakersfield because the river that flows through Bakersfield really isn't a river anymore. It's completely dry. Um, excessive diversions for agriculture are just sucking the river dry, and it's a dusty channel through Bakersfield, denying the people of Bakersfield their river. And so, it's bad for river health, obviously, and it's also bad for the community. They need their river back.
0: So we've had uh, we've had the state of Oklahoma, the state of California, Arizona, California again. Number six is a river that goes through several states. What is number six?
2: Number six is the entire Mississippi River flows through 10 states. Um, so yeah, on the Mississippi River, the problem isn't um, not, not enough water. It's uh, too much water at times with climate change. Flooding is increasing. Um, but there are also lots of other problems hitting the Mississippi River. Pollution, habitat loss, so sort of this perfect storm of, of threats to um, this river that put people and wildlife along the river at risk.
0: I think we can imagine where pollution comes from various ag situations, big plants, big cities, all kinds of things like that. The list goes on and on. What is creating habitat loss on a corridor as long as the Mississippi?
2: Probably the biggest thing is channelizing and, and harnessing and changing the river's natural meanders and flows just for flood protection um creating buildings you know however many thousands of miles uh, hundreds of miles of of levees along the river that really constrain it um, so the river can't spread out and do its thing i mean a river this if you look at there's some cool cool old maps that show the historic meanders of the mississippi river and it's like this amazing swirl right going just side to side and so, so cool. Um, and the Mississippi river can't do that anymore. It's a, it's a transportation channel, right? It's a flood channel. Um, so one of the things that American rivers and our partners are trying to do is just find some places where you can give the river some room again to spread out. Um, that's cause that's not only good for habitat, the, the fish and wildlife need those back channels and wetlands and floodplains. Um, but it also creates these little release valves. When there is a big flood, that water has to go somewhere. You can't just shove it onto a downstream community. Um, so you've got to, you know, there are multi, multiple benefits for some of these river restoration efforts.
0: So moving, moving even again, East from the Mississippi, what's the fifth river?
2: Number five on the list is the Coosa river in Alabama. And this is um, just a really stark clean water threat story here. Um, millions of tons of poultry waste are putting the, the river, the clean water and public health at risk along the CUSA. Um, it's, a, it's a huge problem. Um, it's pretty gross to think about, but the people along the CUSA River have to deal with this and we've got to have some better protections to, to protect their clean water.
1: Yeah, and the CUSA... The CUSA is a trip to the mobile and and as you mentioned before, again that word, biodiversity. But when I started my career at American Rivers, I worked on the CUSA on big hydro power relicensings there. And it's just, it's just amazing the number of species. You know, we work on on a handful of endangered species in the in the West, in the Colorado River Basin. The CUSA has dozens and dozens of mussels and darters and snails and you know, other fish. It's 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 a remarkable place.
0: And then going to the Northeast, what's number four?
2: Number four on the list um, is actually a few rivers. So Maine's Atlantic Salmon Rivers. um, We're highlighting the Penobscot, Kennebec, and Union Rivers together because they're all threatened by the same thing. um, And that is antiquated dams. And specifically, there are dams on all three of these rivers that are really posing an existential threat to Atlantic salmon, sort of the last hope for Atlantic salmon um, on these rivers. But these dams are standing in the way and are actually driving these fish towards extinction.
0: And dams be- dams are the problem because they prevent the salmon from doing the, the uprun where they run up the rivers and lay their eggs.
2: Yeah, the dams prevent the salmon from migrating to their spawning grounds, They also change water quality, they change the flow of the river. So as your listeners probably know, a dam makes all kinds of changes on a river that impact species like salmon, which need to migrate um, and all, all throughout the web of life.
0: Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from, that is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022, and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick-looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features, and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. All right. And then heading back down to the south of the United States, what's the third river?
2: Number three on the list is the Mobile River in Alabama. Such a haven. We've been talking about biodiversity and some people call this, you know, the American Amazon. An amazing place that is threatened by coal ash pollution. Um, There's a plant right on the bank of the river and it's the, the local partners there call it a ticking time bomb. If something were to go wrong with this pollution that's just sitting there, it would wipe out this amazing river, the, the clean water and wildlife that's that's all along the river.
0: I was I was explaining this list uh, just a day ago to someone, and the question was, what is coal ash? And I didn't do a very good job of explaining it. Can you explain just briefly what coal ash is?
2: The, it's the byproduct of, of burning coal. Um, and it's being stored on the bank of this amazing river um, in, a, in a way that's not the safest way it can be stored. So our partners are calling for um, much better, tighter safeguards so that the river, um, so it's not a ticking time bomb sitting there and that the river will be protected.
1: And, and a, lot of, a lot of power companies in the Southeast have, have taken proactive steps to move their coal ash away from rivers because of the threat that it faces, even a, even a small fraction of the coal ash on the mobile um, could be catastrophic to the river. Um, and that's the purpose of the listing is to, to ask Alabama power company to move that coal ash away.
0: Moving from Alabama and the Southeast, we're going to go to the Pacific Northwest. What is the second most endangered river on your list?
2: Number two on the list is the snake river in, in the Pacific Northwest. Four dams, four federal dams on the lower snake are driving salmon to the brink of extinction and violating treaties and commitments to tribal nations. And there are solutions possible. We can remove these dams. We can replace their benefits. We have to. I mentioned earlier that this river was on the list last year. We don't often put rivers on the list twice, but on the snake, the, the threat is still front and center. And we're also seeing some positive momentum. Um, So what we're trying to do is just keep this in the spotlight, keep the pressure on, make sure that the Northwest Congressional Delegation and the Biden administration take action now and heed the calls of the Nez Perce tribe and other tribal nations that are saying um, that we need action. We need to remove these dams. Let's do it.
0: Let's talk about that river just for a quick, a quick half minute. Can you describe the layout? Because I, it, it's not a river that hits the ocean. It has salmon. It has a connection with the oceans. Can you describe where this river's headwaters are and how it does connect to the ocean?
2: Yeah, so the Snake River is the biggest tributary to the Columbia River, historically the biggest salmon producer in the entire Columbia River Basin. And for you know your your river your river listeners people who love river trips i mean the the salmon is all part of the snake watershed too right so that amazing pristine wild habitat in the mountains of idaho is what these salmon need to survive especially in an era of climate change that's where the cold water is that's where the pristine habitat is so we've got to make sure that those baby salmon that are born up in those high idaho mountain streams can get down to the ocean, down the snake, down the Columbia, and that the adult fish can get back upstream. And there are four dams on the Columbia River that those adult fish can can get up um, no problem and the, the baby salmon can basically navigate. But it's really the four dams on the lower snake in eastern Washington. When those dams went in in the 1960s and 70s, if you look at graphs of, of salmon returns, it just plummets. The runs just crashed. It's it's four dams too many. And one of the big problems that's, that's emerging now with climate change is the dams heat up the rivers. Um, a, a naturally free-flowing river is cooler. It moves, it flows. These dams create these stagnant pools, these slow-moving pools behind the dams that heat up. And it's salmon need cold water. So that's, that's been a a big problem. So removing the four lower snake dams and restoring a free flowing river is what these salmon need. If we're going to have salmon in, in the future with climate change, we've got to, got to get this river free flowing again.
0: This topic, this topic of the snake river and these salmon fish that are, they're facing extinction probably in our lifetime. If we don't do something, this is the topic of several episodes coming up with the river radius this summer all right that that brings us up to uh the number one i don't want to laugh but just the the dramaticness that that's being uh created here we are now at the number one most threatened river per your your 2022 report uh can you tell us uh what river is your number one river
2: i'm gonna i'm gonna kick it to matt to do the big reveal all
0: right
1: <laughs> thank you amy um yeah Big surprise, it's the Colorado River. The Colorado River has been, you know, the eyes of the world have been on the river for the last couple of years. You know, the, the crisis that we foresaw in 2013, us and many others, has has come to bear. And and over the last 20 years, the river has lost 20% of its flow. In fact, from from 2000 to 2004, uh, the river, through lost storage at Lake Mead and Lake Powell. We lost half our storage, about 25 million acre feet. And we're in a similar um, weather pattern, a similar similar hydrologic pattern right now, um, where we're just we're just not delivering enough water. The river's not the same as it used to be. Um, so this is a different river with much less water. And we have solutions. Uh, we have opportunities to manage the river better in a more flexible and equitable way. And we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity with the passage of the infrastructure bill, and eight point three billion dollars directed at Western Water to uh, to implement those solutions concurrently with coming up with better better management, a better management framework for for the whole basin.
0: So, Matt, let me help me understand why this river is at risk, and, and let me just kind of talk this out for a minute. When I think about a river, I think. I think of some of the rivers where I live, and I hear people say that these rivers are at risk right right in my neighborhood, particularly the Dolores River, that it's at risk. And I see today it's flowing really well. That There's a lot of water coming out of the mountains, and if there weren't dams in the way, if there was not a, a dam in the way here in the, in the case of the Dolores, it would flow, the river would get its water, it would move, it would replenish the riparian zones, the water tables, and that water would move all the way down to the Colorado. And I think the Colorado is similar, that there is... There is a lot of human-created infrastructure that pulls water away from the river. And so what I want to hear about, if you can help me understand, help the listeners understand, the balance of impact between the human infrastructure that pulls water from the river that creates lower flows and also the changing natural precipitation into the Colorado Basin over the last few years, several years— and how those are two different things and the combining of those two are really creating a problem. Can you can you help flush that out some?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean it's a it's 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 largely a math problem, right? We have too much demand on the river and this whether that's the Dolores or the Manstem Colorado. I mean I when I think of the Colorado River, I certainly I certainly include the Dolores in in those thoughts. So yeah, this is this is one of the nation's hardest working rivers um, by volume. I don't think it even crack, cracks the top ten um, in the country, but it provides water to forty million people and drives a huge economy. So there's a lot of demand for for the water. I mean, the the Southwest wouldn't exist as it does without the Colorado River, and that's not just within the basin. So in Colorado, on the Front Range of Colorado, all the municipalities where most of the population is, they depend on the river, the Colorado River for about 50% of their flows. That water is delivered from the headwaters, various different tributaries on the Colorado River, from the Manstown Colorado River, the Eagle, um, the Roaring Fork, um, others. That water is pumped and piped over the mountains. That water never returns. And when it's full go, it's 600 to 700,000 acre feet a year. That's, that's diverted out of basin. The same is true in Utah. Salt Lake city depends on, Salt Lake city is not in the Colorado river basin, but depends in part on the Colorado river. Same with Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Um, And in the lower basin, San Diego and Los Angeles are not in, in the hydrologic basin of the Colorado river, but they depend for a significant amount of their water, on the river so it has a lot of demands inside the basin and outside the basin those demands aren't necessarily going away on top of that we have climate change and this region is heating faster than just about any other region in the world and that that sucks a lot more water it evaporates a lot more water it dries up our soils we have a demand problem and we have a declining supply, and. The, the, the key to our success, our ability to meet this challenge, is to figure out how we're gonna kind live with less water. For a hundred years, we've been making decisions, management decisions. We've been kind of carving up the river for, for different allocations for different states, making decisions based on a river that hasn't existed in, in decades and decades, if ever at all. And we need to change that paradigm. We need to start thinking about the river not as a, not as a 15 to 17 million acre foot river, but we need to start making decisions based on a river that is maybe nine or 10 million acre feet. And that's a significant, that's a significant, there's a significant Delta there. So, um, and that's what the infrastructure bill allows us to do is that we can make these investments, um, whether that is through incentivizing kind of water conservation at scale in urban and rural areas, modernizing ancient infrastructure that we have, very importantly, from our perspective, investing in the health of our watersheds to both provide water quality benefits, habitat benefits, potentially water, water quantity benefits, um, and also to mitigate against catastrophic wildfire.
0: It's a big list. It's a short list of 10, but the, the, the enormity of each of these rivers, their, their length, their, their impacts on landscape, animals, riparian zones, on humans is, is just enormous. And further in that, you know, the Colorado River is it's and, and the Snake River, I mean all of them. But those two things to me have such complex layers in in what has to be done by humans to allow these rivers to continue to provide river life and health, but also human needs. In in kind of stepping away from the oh my gosh, this is intense, the complexity of it. I want to go back just to this list. So earlier in the episode, I asked you. I asked for the number one river of the last five years. One of those was the Big Sunflower River in Mississippi. You all told me that that has been solved, and I, I don't, maybe "solved" isn't the right word, but that, that is a, that is a story of a river where it be it, it's named number one and work by American Rivers and lots of other local partners and probably national groups had success in helping this river gain the support it needs it can you just tell us a little bit more about that to help us understand how rivers on this list are not just being highlighted to say oh my gosh let's put our hands up and scream it's more saying this is what we need to focus on let's dig in and let's support this place can you can you help us understand a little bit more of that story about the big sunflower
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah. And as Matt said earlier, I mean, we're not pretending that, you know, just because American Rivers puts a river on this list, it magically, you know, gets saved and we take credit for any good thing that happens. But it is true that this report does create a a very bright national spotlight to put decision makers in the spotlight. And it mobilizes the public to get those emails and phone calls in and it, it gets a ton of media attention. It amplifies what the local leaders are saying and brings that to a national stage. Um, So on the big sunflower, I mean, the threat of the Yazoo pumps project, this was this zombie project that like it would get killed, you know, George Bush administration killed it. And then it came up again and it just, it kept re emerging as, as someone else would champion it and come back. And it was the, big sunflower we put it on the list for for multiple years over a couple of decades and ultimately it was a combination of local leaders national organizations um, national wildlife federation played a huge role in this and i think our report helped with some visibility all of all of any any win on any river is always a tremendous team effort
0: so what's what's the you know there's folks listening to this that um might feel overwhelmed might feel like wow I don't want to think about this but and there might there's probably folks too who are wondering how to get involved and I think all folks probably at some level are kind of curious what's up what are, what are people who are right now thinking about their river permits that are coming up their summer trips their weekend you know, a lot of us are are getting ready to enjoy spring and summer on these rivers how do folks get involved how do folks do anything to support any of these 10 rivers or even other rivers in their neighborhoods, how do folks get involved and and make that next step?
2: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways people can, can engage. I mean, one uh, you can follow us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just keep in touch with American rivers that way. Second way would be to, I know we all get a lot of email, but we do, if you sign up for American rivers emails, um, we will not bombard you. We send out, high-level action opportunities and a monthly e-newsletter. So that's a great way to keep in touch, stay connected, find out what's going on with rivers nationally and in your region. And then for folks who are so inclined, uh, become a member. Um, You can become a member of American Rivers and support us that way. And that's, that's huge. River Network has a great directory of local river organizations. So I think it's so important to support the local grassroots groups on your home river. Um, that's a really wonderful way to stay in touch with the issues in your own backyard.
1: It's so important. I mean, not only taking personal responsibility about how you use water, holding your elected leaders uh, uh, accountable for sound and sustainable water management and river protection and clean water, volunteer, write a check to your local your local river group, your local watershed group, um, they're doing really good work and and oftentimes they're they're under-resourced so so support for your local organization is is hugely hugely important
0: and a question for both of you uh, you both are i mean just inherently by your work you appreciate rivers you spend time with rivers but you are you you both are on the insides you're getting you know this report might say so many things about rivers i would assume that you both know a lot of other frustrating um, hard to deal with details and impacts that are happening to rivers yet you are here you're in good spirits you're doing the hard work I'm curious how you both stay on the on the on the upside how, how do you how do you engage with rivers in a positive way that that helps you to go back to the quote office and do the hard work uh, each week well I, you know, I mean,
1: I think to, to do this job and to do this job well, um, it requires a, a certain level of optimism. And, you know, one of the things that, that I'm sure Amy would agree with, and I'm sure you would agree with too, Sam, is that rivers and water um, have this kind of unique ability to bring people together. Because of that, I'm going to remain optimistic. I, I don't think there's anything that we can't do if we work together, right? I mean, this rivers and water, they cross political lines they're, they're amazing for so many different reasons, right? And because of that, there are so many shared values out there, conservation organizations and tribes, conservation organizations and, and agriculture, ranchers, farmers, you know, we all, we all know that, that they're so important and we need to work together. We're not always going to agree on everything, but we need to work together to make sure that, that there's a, there's a future for, for these rivers and for all that for all those, those that depend on them?
2: I would say for me, um, uh, I guess it's two things. I mean, one, um, I have two boys, so just seeing the world through their eyes and little sparks of wonder, even something that I might think is boring or not remarkable. You know, I see them see it, something in nature or on a river. And it's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. Um, so just experiencing the world through them, and you know, uh, just this responsibility—like we gotta, we gotta figure this stuff out for our kids. And then the second piece is—I uh, don't know. I mean, one thing that keeps me going: I love reading. I, I'm, I'm just—I will just consume any art or literature or anything that has to do with rivers or water or the natural world. And I just there's something about just that kind of creative or spiritual connection about just what rivers and water really mean. So like, despite all of the challenges and bad news, like rivers will always represent life no matter what, no matter where you are, whether it's the LA river, you know, encased in concrete or the dry river in Bakersfield on the Kern, like it's still a source of life. So that's just an amazing place to be and to be able to, work on
0: and focus on. Excellent. Well, thank you both for taking the time out of your day to do this, to get on the to get on the mic with me. Um and I appreciate your work with American Rivers. It's uh, it's good to see this report come out again.
2: Thank you. This was fun. We appreciate it.
0: Appreciate you, Sam. A big sunflower river size thank you goes out to Amy Sowers-Cober and Matt Rice and American Rivers for providing the depth of detail about this report and these rivers. Today's advertising sponsor is your local Denver area Nissan dealers. You can find them online at nissanusa.com and there's a link in the episode notes. In the vein of talking about rivers that need our literal support, This past weekend, the River Radius sponsored and also participated in a river cleanup on the South Platte River in Denver, Colorado. There were many other excellent river companies and river people sponsoring and participating in the cleanup. This was put on by Protect Our Rivers, and we collectively pulled out 6,300 pounds of trash that day. Protect Our Rivers offers river cleanups on many rivers. You can find them on the web, Instagram, Facebook, and in today's episode notes. I learned so much about cleaning rivers last weekend and I encourage you to get wet and muddy and clean up a river. Our next single episode will publish later this month and is a story from the mid-1990s of three friends kayaking Devil's Canyon on the big Susitna River in Alaska. The Susitna is a big-volume river full of rain and glacial melt. 26 years later, I was able to get the full story from three kayakers, one of their wives, and the pilot. This story came recommended to me, and I'm so glad it did. Coming soon to your podcast player. You can be in touch anytime, hello at theriverradius.com. Normally, at the end of the episode, you hear outtakes of poignant statements or funny comments. This set of outtakes are of spring, of bees under a big old crabapple tree here in the orchard adjacent to the River Radius studio. It is the time of year for that tree to be in amazing full bloom, and so many bees show up. So, imagine a big tree, thousands of wonderful flowers, and their perfect aroma, and bees having a bee party and a boom mic getting real close. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius.